As we were singing that last song, the Lord just laid on my heart this question. What am I holding back from him? That's just a transition. I'm not so sure that it has anything to do with where we're getting ready to go in Scripture. It's just that the Lord challenged me in that, you know, when we lay our whole life down, that typically means all of it. And I'm just asking the Lord to show me where might I still be holding on to portions of my life. All right, I ask you to take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians, the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you're using that pew Bible in front of you, you can turn to page 1,356. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we will cover the first 10 verses, which are the only 10 verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll cover that in a minute as we begin a uh, new sermon series through the book of 1 Thessalonians. At the time that I was writing this, which would have been Thursday morning when I sat down and finished writing everything for this week. Did you know that there had been eight earthquakes in the state of Tennessee this week? In the prior seven days from the moment I wrote this, there were eight earthquakes. Seven of those earthquakes measured 2.0 or greater on the Richter scale. The latest one, the last one at the time that I wrote this was in a place called Pittman, Center. Anybody know where Pittman Center is? It's east of Gatlinburg, Pittman Center, Tennessee, and it measured 2.4 on the Richter scale. Most Tennessee earthquakes are not felt, meaning that we can't notice them as much as they are measured seismically. In the last year, there have been over 300 earthquakes touched the state of Tennessee. So yes, that moment that you're now hearkening back to, you're going, did I just feel something? Could have been an earthquake. The largest earthquake to hit Tennessee was August the 17th, 1865, near Memphis, and it measured 4.7 on the Richter scale. An earthquake is defined, and you're going, Jeff, we know what an earthquake is, but just let, me, just let me tell you how it's defined, okay? An earthquake is defined as a sudden release of stored energy by fracture or movement along a fault line. Now, when it's stored energy, that means it's building up. It's little by little by little, and it gets to a point where it has to do something, and that's called an earthquake. Now, to get just a little bit more scientifically driven here, the hypocenter is the location beneath the earth into its crust where the earthquake or the shift has occurred. Now, a word that you probably know better is the epicenter is the location right above the hypocenter on the earth's surface, and the ability to feel an earthquake usually starts at about 2.0 or higher. Earthquakes typically have three phases. There's the foreshock. There's the initial warning that something's getting ready to happen. Then there's the main shock, which is the largest impact of that earthquake. And then there are potentially many aftershocks, which could be seen as smaller repercussions down the line of the earthquake. An earthquake that measures 
4.0 on the Richter scale can be felt as far as 60 miles away. An earthquake measuring just 5.5 can be felt 300 miles away, and that same earthquake measuring 5.5 can cause damage as far as 25 miles away from its epicenter. Today, as we start a new sermon series, I want us to see a spiritual earthquake or maybe want us to even become part of a spiritual earthquake. Let's stand together. We're going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, which is 10 verses. Allow me to read that for us together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, picking up at verse 1, says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Thank you. You may be seated. Keep your scripture open. We're going to be spending a little time walking back through 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. One. Now, 1 Thessalonians was one of the earliest letters that Paul wrote to the church, likely written somewhere about A.D. 50 or 51, likely written by Paul while he was in Corinth. Paul had visited Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. You can read that in the book of Acts. And Paul had planted the church in Thessalonica. Now, the city of Thessalonica was an important port city. It was also the capital of the Roman Empire in Macedonia and was located at the crossroads of two major transportation routes, north-south and, I think I said north-south. That would be east-west and north-south. Thessalonica was an important cultural city political city, an economic city. And Paul is going to, is encouraging the church that it can become spiritually significant church for the gospel. Paul taught and challenged the church in many areas through this letter that we'll talk about in the weeks ahead. We begin today a study through this book, and I want to encourage you to read it. And then once you've read its five chapters, I want to encourage you to read it again. Every Wednesday night, I strive to make it a habit to tell those in attendance or online what focal passage we'll be speaking on on Sunday. And I will continue to do that. 
But I want to encourage you to make a commitment, at least weekly, to read the entire book of 1 Thessalonians. And you're going, Jeff, how long do you want us to read the book of Thessalonians every week? Every week we're in this sermon series. I think that God will then use what we talk about today to inform us later, but also what we talk about later will cause chapter one to become more alive to us as well. So I don't want you to just move forward with me. I want you to, let's just take the whole book every single week, and then we'll take a focal passage as we navigate our way through that. And when you do this, as you do this, I want to encourage you to ask God to show you what he wants for you that week. So today, we tackle chapter 1. Look in verse 1. Paul states that this letter was written by him along with Silvanus and Timothy. Well, Silvanus, if you read, and it might even be in your translation, is also Silas. Paul and Silas. We know Paul and Silas have, have traveled together on these missionary journeys. So this is Paul and Silas and Timothy. Now, I think it's, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting thing that Scripture gives through Paul writing. Paul says, me and Silas and Timothy write this letter to you. It's probably very interesting that Paul is being very inclusive because it talks about how important those men are to his walk in the Lord. Most people believe that Paul, and even when you read into some of the pronouns that Paul uses through the book, that Paul shifts away from it being a we book into a I book, and God is walking and talking through him, but him bringing them together. Do you know that's an important thing for us to understand? Because we're getting ready to talk about it a little bit more as we talk about it, but Paul, from the very beginning, is including those people that walk with him as part of how he moves forward and serves the Lord. And do you know, and I'm going to probably say it again, I cannot be as effective in serving the Lord if I don't walk with you. And you cannot be as effective serving the Lord if you don't walk with me. And let's just say that differently. Look around. The people that you see sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you, if they have a relationship with Jesus, they are vital to your walk with the Lord because we have been called to walk together as a body of believers. So hold on to that point and remember that as we walk through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul tells us his intended audience. Look at verse 1 again. It says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church, to the church. And I was drawn to that statement, to the church. Now, what I believe is true in this room is that there are many individual believers in this room. You deeply care about the ways of Jesus. You are serious about your relationship with Jesus on a daily basis, and you should be. But church, I don't want us to lose the fact that if we're not careful, we could miss the clear calling of Scripture that it, this is not just an individual journey. 
that we are called together, as Paul is reminding us, he says, I'm going to encourage you, challenge you, teach you, but I'm talking to the church. And so it's important that we understand that, yes, we need to allow the Lord to teach us and challenge us and convict us and draw us closer to him as individuals. But that is not the entire journey that you have been called upon. You have been called to become part of a greater body of Christ called the church. And you will find your fulfillment, your function, your effectivity will happen as you yield yourself to the inner workings of God as he knits you together as the church. And so Paul is writing to the church. This is not just a personal calling, but a command to the church as a whole. Church, Paul is writing to you. But Paul is also writing to us, the body of believers, formed together by him for a purpose even greater than a single person can accomplish. So as we come through this, I want to challenge you to always allow the Word of God to challenge you personally and to create application in your life individually. But I also want you to see, read, understand, and ask the Lord, how am I to use this and become an effective, ongoing member of the body of Christ? You see, Paul is writing to the church. So we don't want to ever forget that. So when, we, when he uses phrases like you and we and us, he's not talking about you individually. He's talking about it because he's defined his audience as the church. He's talking about a corporate body of us together. Now, Paul tells us about this specific type of church. It says here in verse 1, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this week I was asked about First Baptist Church and its relationship with the Southern Baptist Convention. I was asked that on more than one occasion. I related to the people that I've spoken to about this, not just this week, but in the past, that I am proud to be considered a Southern Baptist. But... I consider myself first, yes, you heard me say before Southern Baptist, I consider myself first to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I happen to believe as a proud Southern Baptist who is a first follower of Christ, that Southern Baptist happened to most closely align themselves with Scripture, and therefore, that is why I am a Southern Baptist. I was then asked, well, what happens? What do you do, Jeff, pastor, if FBC, what, do, what would FBC do if the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, moved away from the truth of Scripture? Well, I did a little bit of digging. I've learned over time and have known this a bit that the Southern Baptist Convention was formed 177 years ago. But did you know that First Baptist Church here in Shelbyville, Tennessee, was formed 179 years ago? Now, 
179 years, we don't even look our age, do we? 179 years. And so, Jeff, what do those dates mean? Those dates mean that we were a church that sought Christ before there was a convention of churches that sought Christ. Now, I'm a proud Southern Baptist. I think that the Southern Baptists have their own challenges because they're made up of some of the meanest people I've ever met. (laughs) But I also believe that they hold high the perfection of God's Word. And so I want to encourage you, as Paul is writing to the church, he says that the church that I'm writing to, the church that's going to make a difference, you notice Paul didn't say, and I'm writing to you, Southern Baptist Church. No. Paul's not writing denominationally. What Paul is saying right here is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to people who seek the God of the Bible, who trust in the gospel of Jesus. We have been standing on the truth of Scripture for all these years, 179 years and counting, and we will continue to align ourselves first with the Word of God. It is the recognized truth and revelation of God to us. So today, when Paul is writing to the church, he's not just writing to you individually, he's writing to us corporately. And Paul is not just writing to people who show up and and attend and are members someplace, he's writing to people who are in God, in Christ. So Paul's not nearly writing to everybody. He's writing to a very specific group of people, and I hope that he's writing to you today. But I couldn't get off this in Christ, in God. Look, verse 1, it says, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going, Jeff, mine doesn't say, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if you grammatically tear this apart, and I'm not the grammar guy, but I know grammar people. And when there's an and right there, you do have the ability to write that sentence in the way that I'm saying it, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, which also would be and in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to fully understand this place, and you're going, what place? This place called in God, in Christ. This place of in God, in Christ, church, is the greatest place you will ever be. This in Christ, in God, is the safest place you will ever be be. In Christ, in God. You know that living for Jesus brings challenges? Gotcha. Troubles? Persecutions? I was driving home Wednesday night, and I looked out to my left, and I saw the last traces of the sunset. And it's been a tough two or three weeks in the body of Christ, not in a unity standpoint, but in a hurt, loss, struggle, suffering kind of way. It's just been a lot, and I was, I was counting and, and carrying this, and I was walking as I was driving, and as I was driving home, I looked to my left on my way to Bell Buckle, and I saw just the last little remnants of red and orange and the sky 
was mostly dark. And God reminded me in that moment that he's right there. Amidst the challenges, the troubles, the persecution, I was reminded of God's faithfulness to me. But I was reminded of God's faithfulness to you. And so if you find yourself in trouble, in challenge, in persecution, God's right there. And if you know Jesus, you're in the greatest place. and the safest place there is ever known. You see, Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, he said, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you know that once you come to know Jesus as Savior, you are in Christ in God? And, and I represent this a little bit, talking to kids and some people, I guess. If I put something right here, call it a quarter, and then I close my hand around it in Christ. And then I take my other hand and I clasp it right here in God. And then I walk up to somebody who's smaller than I am and weaker than I am. And you get the point. You, you, see, you see this thing breaks down quickly when it becomes about me. But do you know how hard it's going to be for them to get that out of there? And we're talking about me. But Jesus isn't. Paul's not. Paul said, no, you're in Christ in God. You're in the hand that can't be broken within the hand who will never let you go. That's in Christ in God. That's a safe place. That is a great place. And Paul says, I'm writing to the church that is in Christ in God. I'm writing to the church that's in the greatest and safest place that there is. I'm writing to that church. Nothing can ever separate you from the love of God, from the power of God. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Nothing. Today, if you're saved, third week in a row, I'm going to make this reminder. Because two weeks in a row, somebody has said, that challenged me. Here's that reminder. Because when I say, if you're saved, God won't let me just keep on going. He says, I just need to remind you, church, salvation is not what you say you have. But salvation, rather, is what God knows he has given you through Jesus Christ because of the faith that you have expressed in Christ. And so when I make the statement, if you are saved, it is not since you are saved. It is between you and God, do you know that you are saved? And when you and God get to that clarification, and I just happen to believe right now that if there is someone online, someone on the phone, someone in the room that is not saved, I believe that the Spirit of God does its work to point that out to that individual right now. And I pray that you will allow that Spirit of God to lead and draw you to where God wants you to be in Christ, in God. Verse 2, Paul goes on and says, we give thanks to God always for you. You know, Paul is stating his thankfulness for the church. For what? Why is Paul thankful to the church? Have you ever been told somebody comes up to you and says, I just want to say thank you, and you don't have any idea why they're saying thank you to you? Just 
Hold on to that thought for just a second. Paul doesn't leave them hanging. He says, I am thankful. We give thanks to God always for you. Paul makes it clear why he and Silas and Timothy are thankful, what they are thanking God for. Look at verse 3. We are thankful for you, verse 2, because in verse 3, we remember three things. If you're a note taker, these are the three things you want to write down. Your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope. Paul says, when we remember you and we remember your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope, we're thankful. In Jesus, their faith, love, and hope were a result of their relationship with Christ. But you know, so many times from the pulpit, we talk about faith, love, and hope, and as if everybody gets it and everybody understands it, and we don't understand how important it is, we just keep on going. And God said, Jeff, you just can't keep on going because this scripture talks a little bit more about that. If we're not careful, we'll just read it too quickly, faith, love, and hope, cool, go, I got that too, let's just keep right on going. Edmund Hybert states that these traits, faith, love, and hope, are listed in their logical order. Faith must come, then love, then hope. So let's talk about these for just a second. Your work of faith. Allow me to give you just a simple definition of that. Faith is the response of the soul of man to the word of God. Verse 9 goes on and helps us understand this work of faith. It says in verse 9, you'll see that how you turned to God from idols. When a man responds to the word of God, Scripture teaches that he now walks by faith. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, walking by faith. Jesus stated in John chapter 6, verse 29, that is the work of God that you believe on him who he sent. Faith is a work of God in your life. But think about faith for just a second. When we think of these three that Paul and Silas and Timothy are thankful for, faith rests on the past. Faith is you looking back to what Jesus did on the cross. Faith is a turning to Jesus. As opposed to the second thing they're thankful for, which is your labor of love. Love is what springs from your work of faith that God has done in your life. You're looking back at the cross, and it looks to your love works in the present. Verse 9 goes on to say how you said it, not just how you turned from idols to God, but that you serve the living and true God. Jesus stated in John chapter 14, verse 50, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you do not love Jesus, you will not obey Jesus. You will not value the word of God. Love to God is expressed in our obediently submitting to him in the way that we live our lives each day. So if faith is looking back to what Jesus did on the cross, love is looking up to Jesus on a daily basis. And let's look at that third one, the patience in hope. Look at verse 10. It says, 
how you wait for his son from heaven. We talked this morning in uh, the young married class. They're, they're sort of letting me walk along with them here just a little bit. And we were in Revelation, and you know Jesus comes back? He does. And we're reading about it, and it's pretty awesome. And we were in Revelation chapter 19 this morning. And I just want to tell you that if you don't think he's coming back, you've not read it right. He's coming back. And there's where we find our hope. Regardless of where you find yourself today, if you know Jesus, you've come to him by faith, by looking back at what Jesus did on the cross. Your work of love is you looking to Jesus daily for how you are to live. And hope is looking to the future. Hope looks forward to the coming of Christ. Do you know that every man is sustained by hope? Your hope is placed in something. Without hope, we stop living. But with hope, Martin Luther said, everything that is done in the world is done by hope. So just think about what Paul said. He says, we're thankful for you because you're in Christ and God. You're serving God. We're thankful for you because you have looked at Jesus on the cross for your faith. You're looking to Jesus daily for your love and the way that you live and that you are patiently looking forward with hope to his return. And Paul says, Silas and Timothy and I, every day we are thankful for you. Do you know somebody? who has this work of faith, this love, and this patience and hope. If you know somebody who's living that way, you should be thankful for them. Because, see, they are faithfully serving God. Because you have faith in Christ, because you live obediently for Christ, because you look forward to the return of Christ, Paul says, we are so thankful for you. Verse 4, knowing your election by God, Paul says that this faith, love, and hope show us that you have been saved. You show me a life without faith, love, and hope. And I'll tell you that Scripture would probably say that that life does not yet know Jesus. And equally so, if you're going to say, how do I know? How can I know that I'm saved? Do you have the work of faith? Do you have the love? And are you looking forward to the hope? But he goes on in verse 5, and he said, it's not just that, but it's not in word only, but also in power. Paul goes on to state that this faith this love and this hope are not just things that you accepted, that you heard about, and you go, yeah, I'll take some of that. But these were created in you by work of the Holy Spirit. The work of salvation is purposed by God the Father, accomplished by Jesus Christ the Son, and applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit graciously, effectively, permanently gives us Christ Jesus and every blessing he, Jesus, has secured for us. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11 says this, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. It is the power, Paul says, it's not just that you heard a good sermon or heard a good lesson or somebody taught you that you needed to grab a hold of these three things. No, the Holy Spirit of God has done a work in your life that enables your faith, causes your love, and helps you to hold on in hope. So let's look back at verse 2 for just a second. You're going, Jeff, don't go backwards. Don't go backwards. You're doing so good. But look back at verse 2. It says that we give thanks to God always for you. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are thankful. But look at where their thankfulness is to God. They're not thankful to you. They're thankful to God for calling them, for saving them, for creating this faith, love, and hope within them. And remember, this is a challenge to the individual. Yes, faith, love, and hope, an individual challenge. But this is also a letter to the church. And so our faith, our love, our hope have to play into this. But then they're not done being thankful. They tell us a little bit more about what they're thankful for. Look in verse 7. Verse 7 says, You became examples in Macedonia and Achaia to those who believe. You became examples. Paul is singled out. Yes, we just need to make this very reasonable connection. Because Paul has been very specific about who he's talking to. In Christ, in God, faith, love, hope. He's really defining down who he's speaking to, and those are the people that he's thankful for. And he said that these people have become examples. Macedonia and Achaia, that would be locally. They have become examples locally. So this leads me to the reasonable conclusion that there were some within the church who claimed faith but did not show faith, love, or hope. You became examples. He didn't say, and all of you were examples. Do you know that the only time you point out a good example is when there are the opposite examples also in play? And unfortunately, in this world we live in, we face individuals that aren't necessarily driven, saved by faith, love, and hope. But even I cannot get away from the fact that that means that there then are churches that are not based upon faith, love, and hope. We cannot get away from the fact and make this easy to think that Paul is somehow pointing out 
three or four of us in this room and the rest of us are good. Paul is saying that until the church is good on faith, until the church is good on love, until the church is good on hope, the church isn't good yet. And we've got to walk through that. And Paul says, I'm thankful for that. You became examples, models to follow. They're a very effective way for people to see God effectively work and the Holy Spirit to convict. Do you know that God can use you living faithfully right where you are? At home, in church, in the community, on the ball field, at work. God desires to use you and to allow you to be an example of faith, love, and hope. And that the Holy Spirit of God that drew you, that did that powerful work in you, also desires to and can do that same trifecta of work in the life of someone else. But verse 8, earthquake time. It says, but from you, not only were you examples or a model to follow, but for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. Did you notice that this group of people in Christ, in God, faith, love, hope, that they're thankful for. Not only were they good examples to those that could see and around them, but it goes on to say that their faithfulness, that their love and that their hope extended out to areas that they hadn't even gone to. So back to my earthquake example. Jesus. Church, can I tell you that Jesus is your hypocenter? He is the source of all the power. And that you individually and we as a corporate body of believers, we are the epicenter. We are where that source of power has chosen to break ground and to be felt in a specific area over 300 times in the state of Tennessee. And that these every places that Paul is talking about are these seismic events, these spiritual events, these tremors, these aftershocks that are being felt in the world because of faith, love, and hope of the church, of those that are in Christ in God. By the church, its people, Paul says, we're thankful because not only are you faithful, but people are coming to know Jesus because of your faithfulness. Now, just think for just a second. We get how people can come to know Jesus in your family or in your work environment or in your social environment or in your neighborhoods. We know how that can happen. But how does it get out and sound forth other places? Well, we're in Utah. We're in Atlanta. We're in Alaska. We're in Brazil. We're in Moldova. Now, is that about us? No, that's about opportunities where we've allowed the hand of God to lead us where he wants us to go. But church, if we're going to continue to be seismic spiritual events, we've got to be faithful, 
acting in love and full of hope as a body of believers. But then we got to be active in allowing God to not just use us where we already are, but to show us where he wants us to be next. What an opportunity. Now, you're going to get to talk to your kids if you've got children in children's church, and you're going to be able to say, what did you learn in in children's church? I hope you do that. And they're going to tell you what they learned, and it's going to be a great thing that they learned, and you're going to make a big deal over it because this is the truth, because that's the only thing that we're going to seek to teach in children's church is the truth. And I hope that they ask you this question, and if they don't, you've got to bring it up. Why don't you ask Daddy what he learned today in big church? Okay, Daddy, what did you learn today in big church? Well, I learned that because I know Jesus, he can make me an earthquake. You guys didn't miss that, did you? Coming together, because Jesus is my hypocenter, his power is going to release suddenly in my life to my epicenter, and then I'm going to be able to live in faith, in love, in hope, and I get to be an example to you, son. I get to be an example to our family, to our church, to our community, to your baseball team, however you want to look at this. But then as we give through the cooperative program, as we support missions, as we do all these things, we get to sound forth the tremors of the power of the Holy Spirit in this world. I, son, get to be an earthquake. I want to be an earthquake. You know, and in this moment, I'm just feeling the Spirit right this second, but I just want to tell you that in this moment, we can be an earthquake. Not because there's a lot of us, but because Jesus is on the throne. Don't ever forget that the hypocenter, the source, is Jesus and only Jesus. It's not how big this place is. It's not how many of us that are. It's not how much we put in those baskets. It's not how many times we're in Sunday school, and it's not how much food we give away. Our source is Jesus. But our faith, our love, and our hope are all those other things. That's how the world will come to know Jesus, through the aftershocks of our faithful living. And church, I don't get to be that by myself. Paul wrote to the church, the only way we will ever be an earthquake that registers enough to be felt. You know, I'd hate to be an earthquake, and everybody goes, yeah, I said, I was an earthquake today. Yeah, nobody felt you. (laughs) Don't you want to be felt? If we're going to go to the trouble of having faith, love, and hope to be committed to Jesus, to be faithful, don't you want to make a difference? And we make a difference when we yield to the source of the power that is Jesus. And I can't do it alone, nor can you. But we can, as we faithfully come together, Jesus can make us an earthquake. That's pretty awesome. I got to be a lot of things growing up. I never got to be an earthquake. Now I just figured out this week, I can be part of an earthquake. I pray you'll join me. Church, let's stand and pray.
with each other.